This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Career Talk on Business Radio. Here is your host, Dr. Don Graham. Welcome to Career Talk, your career insider. We are here in Business Radio. We are powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Hey, if it's noon on Thursday, you can call us all hour long because we are live right now at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. I'm the career director for the Wharton MBA program for executives here in Philadelphia, I'm also a licensed psychologist, former corporate recruiter, and author of the new book, Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and Seize Success. Dream team in studio today, Michelle and Dion. And we're so excited because we know how fun they make this show. Hey, thinking of a career change, got a job search question. If it's Thursday, you know it's open calls all hour long right here on Career Talk. Can't call in? You can always tweet a question at Dr. Don Graham. So, hey, what's going on in the current news? Well, according to a remote.com survey, 200 full-time, 100% remote workers have challenges unplugging after work, and that's their biggest concern as a remote worker. But despite this challenge, 83% said they imagine that they could never return to working in a full-time office. Hey, do you work remotely? What's your biggest challenge? Give us a call all hour long at 844-942-7866. So we're very excited for today's Career Talk show. We have two fantastic guests, so let's just dive right in. In our first segment, we're going to talk about how to apply the techniques in the wildly popular book, Atomic Habits by James Clear, to catapult your job search. Coming up at 12.30, 9.30 Pacific, we welcome another best-selling author, Michael Watkins, to speak about how to catapult your success in the first 90 days of your job. So let's just jump in right now. Remember, we are live if it's Thursday, 844-942-7866. So we're excited to welcome James Clear, an author and speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur Time, and on CBS This Morning. And through his online course, The Habits Academy, James has taught more than 10,000 leaders, managers, coaches, and teachers. And I am sure many of you have read his best-selling book, Atomic Habits. Many congrats on the success of your book, James. Tell us, what is an atomic habit? Oh, well, thank you so much. It's nice to talk to you. Um, So I chose the phrase atomic habits for three reasons. Uh, The first meaning of the word atomic is tiny or small, like an atom. And I do think habits should be small and easy to do. It's kind of a central part of my philosophy. The second meaning of the word atomic is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And habits are kind of like that. They're sort of like the fundamental unit of our daily routine. And you sort of put them together and you end up with the overall arc of what your day looks like. And then the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy or power. And I think if you put all three of those meanings together, you sort of understand the arc of the book, which is if you make changes that are small and easy to do, and you layer them on top of each other 1% at a time, like units in a larger system, 
then you can end up with some really powerful and remarkable results, despite how small or easy any individual habit might be. So we all have really bad habits. I mean, everybody. I'm, I'm, I might quiz Michelle and Dion to share their bad habits because you love talking about those things on air. But, but why do we keep going back to our bad habits? Because I think most of us can name them pretty quickly. We can list them off and say we really should stop doing this, but we keep doing them. Why, why do we do that, James? Right. Good question. So, yeah, you're like, well, if it's a bad habit, why am I doing it all the time? And the answer is you can sort of imagine any behaviors producing multiple outcomes across time. So we could broadly say, like, there's an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. And with bad habits, the immediate outcome is often pretty favorable. Like, what is the immediate outcome of eating a donut? Kind of good. It's sweet, sugary, tasty. It's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome if you keep eating donuts for a week or six months or a year that's unfavorable. Um, Same thing even for, like, smoking a cigarette. The immediate outcome might be that you get to socialize with friends outside or um, curb your nicotine craving or reduce stress but the ultimate outcome is unfavorable. And good habits are often the reverse. Um, With a good habit, the immediate outcome of like going to the gym for a week is you're kind of sore, your body looks the same in the mirror, the scale hasn't really changed. It's only if you stick with it for a year or two or three that uh, you start to get the results that you want. And so the challenge is that there's sort of this misalignment of the immediate outcome and the ultimate outcome. And when you're building a good habit, you kind of have this valley of death in the beginning where you're like, showing up and working on it, but you don't have the results that you're hoping for. And so if you want to break a bad habit, you need to find a way to have an immediate cost to the behavior. And if you want to build a good habit, it's helpful to find a way to have an immediate benefit so that you have reasons to keep showing up. So yeah, so basically you just gave me the choice of a donut or valley of death. And I I really have no idea how I would not choose the donut every time, James. That's that's really that's really um an easy choice for me. But I totally get what you're saying. And on Career Talk, our listeners are in a job search or maybe they're thinking about a job search or they're contemplating a promotion or raise. And one of the things that that we're always talking about is is know what your goal is. But in your book you say forget about goals. That's that's not what's important here. So as it relates to, to the job search, how, why should people forget about goals and, and why is that a good thing? Yeah, well, first, before I criticize goals, I should say this is coming from someone who was very goal-oriented for a long time. You know, I would set goals for the grades I wanted to get in school, the weights I wanted to lift in the gym, the amount of money I wanted to earn in my business. And at some point, I realized that setting the goal actually didn't determine very much on whether or not I achieved it. Now, goals can be useful. I'm not saying they're totally useless. They can be useful for setting a sense of direction, determining where you want to allocate your focus and attention and energy. But after you've done that, it's kind of more helpful to, instead of focus on the goal, focus on the system. And the way that I would define this is that your goal is kind of your desired outcome. The system is the collection of daily habits that can get you there. And if there is ever a gap between your desired outcome, the the result that you're hoping for, the goal that you set, and your daily habits, the system that you follow, the system will always win. The system will always beat the goal. Whatever system you're running, it is inevitably moving towards some destination. And what you want is for your desired outcomes, your goals, to be aligned with your system. I think we could even go a step further and say that you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. So often in life we think that, well, if I want better results, I just need a bigger goal, I need to be more ambitious, I need to 10X my vision. But the truth is, having the goal is the easy part. Like I can set a goal right now to sell 10 million books. It took me like three seconds. 
Um, it's really the system, the result uh, that delivers that result. I think um, if we're going to translate this to habits, if we're going to talk about why habits matter so much, how they comprise that system, we could say that your results in life and pretty much in any domain are a lagging measure of your habits. So your financial results, your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your physical fitness is a lagging measure of your eating and training habits. Your um, knowledge is a lagging measure of your learning and reading habits. Even the clutter on your desk or in your bedroom is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And so actually the goal or the outcome is just like this natural byproduct of the system that precedes it. And so we think that what we want is for our outcomes to change, but really what we need is for our habits to change. Hey, you're just tuning in. You're listening to Career Talk Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. Here you got a question. Guess what? If it's Thursday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, we are live right this second at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Can't call in? Tweet a question. We'd love to hear from you at Dr. Don Graham. And we're very excited to have James Clear on the show, who is the author of Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. So if you've read this book and you've got a question for James, or maybe you just have a few bad habits you're trying to let go of, this is the show for you. Give us a call at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So yeah, so James, just to kind of uh, encapsulate what you just said, I used to be a, a personal trainer and I'd have somebody come in and say, oh, I'm going to reunion in a week, so I need to lose 10 pounds and this, that, and next thing. And it's like, well, you can't just do 2,000 sit-ups and 100 push-ups and in one day get the result you want. So basically what you're saying is we all need – the things we do every day compound. And you talk about this in your book about getting 1% better every day. So, so applying this to something that I know a lot of job seekers or career professionals hate, it's networking. And I talk about this a lot on Career Talk that you you constantly need to be building your network so that it's there when you need it. If you lose your job today and the network isn't there, it's not like you're going to be able to build this phenomenal network in 24 hours. So so talk about your 1% rule and the system in alignment with, with how people can be building their network every day. So the idea here is that habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. The same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them across time. So in the case of networking, if you make a habit of writing an article for your industry each week and posting it on your blog or posting insights on Twitter or uh, going to particular events and meeting people, once that becomes a habit, then you give it, it has a chance to start to compound. But the hallmark of any compounding process is that the greatest returns are delayed. And so this is really challenging because you're showing up in the beginning and it's kind of like you don't have anything to show for it. And you actually hear this a lot when people uh, start to build habits. They'll say stuff like, I've been running for a month. Why can't I see a change in my body? Or I've been going to all these networking events. I still don't have a job yet. And um, I like to, to kind of use this like brief story or metaphor to illustrate the, the concept. So imagine that you walk into a room. It's cold. You can see your breath. It's like 25 degrees. And there's this ice cube sitting on the table. And you start to heat the room up, 26, 27, 28. Ice cube is still sitting there, 29, 30, 31. And then you get to 32 degrees. It's this one-degree shift, no different than all the other one-degree shifts that came before it. But suddenly you hit this phase transition, and the ice cube begins to melt. And the process of building habits is often like that. And complaining about working for a month 
uh, whether it's networking events or running or writing a book for six months, and the outline still being a mess, complaining about showing up and not having the results that you want yet is kind of like complaining about heating an ice cube from 25 to 31 degrees and it not melting yet. The work is not wasted. It's just being stored. And so you're kind of building up this potential energy that can be released. I think the San Antonio Spurs, the NBA basketball team, that won five championships. They have this quote in their locker room that I think illustrates the idea, which is says something to the effect of, when I feel like giving up, I think about the stone cutter who bangs on the stone a hundred times with his hammer and never shows a crack. And then on the hundred and first blow, it splits in two. And I know that it wasn't the hundred and first that did it, but all the hundred that came before. And all of your habits are like that. It's not the last sentence you write that completes the book. It's all the sentences that came before. It's not the last networking event you went to that builds a great network. It's all the ones that came before. It's not the last workout you did that gives you a great body. It's all the ones that came before. And that willingness to keep showing up and build uh, up a volume of work and then let that compound over time and let time work for you, that I think is ultimately the lesson about getting 1% better each day and how those habits add up. Yeah, well said. Hey, 844-942-7866 is willpower your issue? Well, on today's show, we can help you with that. We have James Clear here talking about his incredibly popular book, Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results, and talking about how changing your systems and how you go about things every day can lead to great success. So if you've got a question, if it's Thursday noon Eastern, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866, and let us talk about habits and how you can get better at them. So let's talk about this willpower thing because, again, it is very difficult to maintain this willpower when you're hitting the rock and nothing's happening and you don't know if it's the next strike that's going to crack it or if it's going to be 10 more. So what can people do if they have this looming task at hand and all of a sudden everything seems more interesting. Yeah, I'd rather be vacuuming or rearranging my spice rack than doing this workout or writing the next chapter of my book. I mean, how can people get past that, James? Yeah, it's a good question. There's kind of, let's like divide it into two buckets. So you've got like short-term willpower, like am I going to take an action right now? And then long-term willpower, do I stick with the habit consistently over a long time? So for for the short-term piece, the strategy that I like to recommend is what I call the two-minute rule. And so it basically says, take whatever habit you're trying to build, and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 40 books a year becomes read one page. Or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes people resist that a little bit because they're like, okay, I know the real goal isn't to like just take my yoga mat out. Like I know I actually want to do the workout. So if this is some mental trick, like why would I fall for it? Um, and I understand why people feel that way, but I have this reader since Mitch, I mentioned him in the book, and uh, he ended up losing over 100 pounds. And for the first six weeks, he went to the gym. He wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he'd get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous. It seems silly. You're like, this is not going to get this person results. But if you step back, what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And this, I think, is a much deeper truth about habits that is often overlooked. We think, I need more discipline, I need more willpower, I need grit. If, I, if only I wanted it more, then I would do it. But the truth is, a habit must be established before it can be improved. Right? You have to make it the standard in your life, make it the new normal, before you can optimize or scale it up from there. And so the two-minute rule kind of helps you get over that hurdle 
uh, and make it so easy, so small, so simple that you can't say no to it. You know, like just doing one push-up, even on the t- days where you're so tired, you're, you're exhausted, you barely made it to bed, you can do one and then collapse and go to sleep. Um, now, if you make your daily habit 50 push-ups, then that requires a lot more energy. And so by, by scaling it down uh, and using the two-minute rule, I think we can help skirt around the willpower issue a little bit and start to master the art of showing up. So if you just show up to the networking event and you say, once I show up and stay for five minutes, I can leave, the, the point is, is that, well, now I'm here, so I might as well get something out of it. Is that... So that often happens uh, where you kind of knock down the lead domino and then you just you feel like uh, staying longer and you're kind of like into the work at that point or into the event at that point. Um, but I would say even if that doesn't happen, even if you show up and you do feel like leaving after five minutes, that's fine. You give yourself permission to do that. Uh, what you're really trying to do is just become the type of person that does this consistently. So ultimately, true behavior change is identity change. And what I mean by that is it's one thing to say, like, I'm the type of person who wants this. It's something very different to say, I'm the type of person who is this. So, for example, the goal is not to, like, run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to write a book. The goal is to become a writer. The goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat. The goal is to become a meditator. And once you start to look at yourself in that way and assign that new identity to yourself, I'm a runner, I'm a writer, I'm a meditator, I'm a musician, whatever it is, it becomes easier to sit down and do the habit of playing guitar or writing the book or whatever. In the case of networking, these can take on even broader concepts. It doesn't have to be like a label, like meditator or runner. It could be something like whenever I do one push-up, I'm reinforcing the identity of I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Or whenever I go to the networking event, I'm reinforcing the identity of I'm the type of person who socializes consistently. And the more that you cast votes for that type type of identity, the more you start to believe it. It's almost like each habit is how you embody a particular identity. Every time you go to a networking event, you embody the identity of someone who is social and has a good network. Every time you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. And ultimately, I think this is the real reason habits matter, which is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so the more that you cast votes for being that new person, the more you build up evidence of this being part of who you are. And pretty soon, once you have enough evidence, you start to believe it. Hey, if you're just tuning in, we were talking with James Clear, the author of the best-selling book, Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. And we're talking all about how you can use the principles in his fantastic book in your job search, whether it's networking, practicing for an interview, or starting to... Do those things that are outside of your job so you can get ready for a promotion. If you start those habits today, they will compound and get you where you want to be. 844-942-7866 is our number. And if it's Thursday, noon Eastern, you can give us a call all hour long. So, James, one of the things I like about in your book as we talk about this are that you talk about habits are easier when they align with natural abilities. And as we kind of play on this networking example, I agree. If you're an introvert and you walk into a room of a hundred strangers and that's not something that's ever going to feel good, then think about how can you achieve that same goal in a different way? So so should it be one-on-one meetings or are there other ways you can do that? So how, how do you know if, if something's just never going to work for you? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, the answer to how do you know if it's going to work for you or not um, requires a lot of self-awareness. So, so the short answer is self-awareness. But the, the more tactical answer uh, for 
introverts or people who don't feel comfortable uh, going to networking events or just don't find that much value in them is that actually this is probably the best time to be alive, to be an introvert and to also have a fantastic network. And what I mean by that is the most effective networking strategy that I've found has nothing to do with conferences, cocktail hours, cold emails, or any of the other common stuff that people talk about. It's a simple two-step process. Do interesting things and share them publicly. And so that can be as simple as starting a blog or an Instagram account or posting on Twitter or doing some kind of project and filming it and posting it to YouTube. But the more that you do great work or interesting things and then share those publicly, it's kind of like a magnet that attracts like-minded people to you. And ultimately, the way that people – to have a network, to to introduce yourself to people just for the sake of introducing yourself to people – is not actually that meaningful because the way that people build a strong network is by developing a reputation for delivering value. And so creating things that are valuable and interesting and uh, remarkable in your field or in some small context is the way to develop a reputation that people care about. And the great thing is you can create stuff like you can sit in your, in your room by yourself all day long and just write something wonderful post it online and people who respect it and love it are going to start to come to you. So I think actually the best networking strategies maybe even skew toward introverts rather than extroverts. It's just that the, the typical or common approaches um, tend to seem more extroverted. So uh, in that way, I think building a habit of writing or of content creation or a podcast or videos or whatever it is, uh, is an incredibly valuable way to pull people toward you. And James, you talk about a number of different strategies. I really think, um, you know, motiv- getting motivated, staying motivated is one of the the more difficult things. And you always hear, oh, once you do something 21 times, it becomes automatic. And I don't, I don't believe that that's true. Um, because it obviously depends on a lot of factors like the environment and, and, you know, who's around you. But one of the things that you talk about in your book that I actually like and do is temptation bundling. Can you talk about what that is? Yeah. So uh, you're right. The the 21 days after 30 days or whatever here, there is no, yeah, like kind of, it does depend on the habit. The, the more difficult the habit is, um, the longer it's going to take. But um the idea of temptation bundling is basically asking you to take a habit that you need to do, that you feel like you need to do more, and pairing that with something that you want to do. So uh, this idea, you know, many people have kind of found this out implicitly uh, just by like, oh, if I, um, if I have a habit that I need to do, like budgeting, then I'll do that when I get to go to the coffee shop on Friday and have like my favorite chai latte or something. And so you get to pair something you enjoy. Uh, it's like a little bit of a reward with the thing that you, uh, that you need to do. But Katie Milkman, who is a professor uh, at the, the Wharton School, mm-hmm. um, did this research and has looked at it in a variety of different ways. And what she's found is that temptation bundles can be really effective for changing people's behavior. So her famous example that she started with was uh, she wanted to read The Hunger Games, but she knew that she uh, needed to work out more. And so she set this little rule or temptation bundle for herself where she was only allowed to read The Hunger Games if she was on the treadmill at the gym. Um, I actually found a more extreme example when I was researching Atomic Habits. There was this engineering student in Dublin who he wired up his stationary bike so that uh, it was connected to Netflix, and Netflix would pause if he wasn't pedaling. So Dang. it was like a very forced <laughs> sensation extreme. bundle, right? Like he literally, he literally binge-watched himself to, uh, to weight loss and a better body. But um, 
the idea there is the same. You know, like if you uh, if you know that you need to answer overdue work emails, but what you really want to do is get a pedicure, then only get a pedicure while you're answering emails. Um, and you can you can apply this concept to many different things. You're just pairing something that you love or enjoy, something rewarding with the thing that you know that you need to do. Yeah, I think this is a fantastic one. If you do struggle with something, think about creating this bundling. It absolutely 100% works. 844-WARDEN, 844-942-7866. We're talking with James Clear, who is the author of Atomic Habits. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. It's Thursday noon Eastern. We are live on Career Talk. And of course, it's always open calls on Thursday at noon, 9 a.m. Pacific, 844-WARDEN, 844-942-7866. So we, I just mentioned environment a few minutes ago, but I think that is such an important aspect of all of this. James, can you speak to how environment impacts changing habits or not changing habits? Yeah, there there are multiple ways to think about this. So let's start with the physical environment. So the, the items on your desk at work, the things on your kitchen counter at home, the way that your living room is laid out, these are the spaces that we live and work in. And the actions that are easier or more obvious in those environments are more likely to be performed. So You know, for example, a lot of people feel like they watch too much TV, but walk into any living room in America, where do all the couches and chairs face? You know, it's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? And you can apply that same concept to the digital environments that we have as well. Like, for example, when I wanted to build a reading habit, I, on my phone, I have this little home bar at the bottom. And so I moved all the icons off the home screen. They're all on the second screen. And then I put two reading apps, Pocket. Uh, for saving articles online to read, and Audible for audiobooks. I put both of those in the, the main bar on the home screen, so that was the first thing I would see when I turned my phone on. And it's the same idea as a physical environment. You're just trying to make the good habit the path of least resistance, the most obvious thing. So environment design can play a big role uh, in what habits you choose to do. But there's also not just the physical environment. There's also the social environment. And this is an area, I wrote a chapter on it uh, in Atomic Habits, I think chapter 9 or 10, is about the influence of friends and family on your habits. So I knew it was important, but since the book has come out, this is uh, an area that I think is even more important than I initially realized. And the short version, the punchline of this, is that you want to join groups, to join tribes, where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then you're going to want to stick with it because it's going to be a signal that you belong or that you get it. And we all want to belong. It's one of the deepest human desires or needs or cravings. And if most people, if you're forced to choose between do I have the habits that I want, but I have to be on my own and go against the tribe, or do I not have the habits that I want, but I get to belong and fit in with the tribe, Most of us would rather be wrong with the crowd than to be right and by ourselves. Most people would choose belonging over loneliness, even if it means their habits have to suffer a little bit. And so the key is that you have to seek out those tribes that have the desired behavior as the normal behavior. So if you're in a family and uh, nobody else really cares about doing yoga or working out, it's nice to have a sacred space at a yoga studio or somewhere else where for at least an hour you can be surrounded by people who have the same goals as you do, uh, who have the same habits that you want to build. Um, and you can apply this idea to pretty much any environment that you're part of. And what you'll find is that the desire to belong often overpowers the desire to improve. Yeah. Well, James, this is 
a fantastic book. I think if, if you're out there and you haven't read Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results, you're going to want to get that book. If you have anything in your life that you're looking to improve, change, or edit, this book can help you do that. So, James, where can people reach you if they'd like more information? Yeah, if you uh, would like to check out more about the book and how to build good habits and break bad ones, you can just go to AtomicHabits.com. And then if you want to uh, see more of my writing and work, uh, you can just go to JamesClear.com and click on Articles, and you'll be able to find everything kind of organized by category and dive into what's interesting to you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, James, for coming on the show today and giving our listeners these fantastic tips and best of luck with your book atomic habits tiny changes remarkable results and hey if you're just tuning in you still have a half hour of career talk left to go so if you'd like to give us a call 844 wharton 844-942-7866 and coming up after the break we welcome internationally best-selling author michael watkins who is the author of the first 90 days and he'll be here with us live so get your questions ready 844-942-7866 but of course we need to go to our pre-break quiz quiz there's a quiz So yes, it is Halloween season, which means haunted houses, scary movies, and spooky costumes. You may know that feeling frightened increases your heart rate, perspiration, and breathing, but you may not know that fear also increases the production of this in your body. And it is something that is not super science technical. That's my hint, Dion. So fear increases the production of this in your body. And if you think you know, 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You're listening to Career Talk, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And we'll be right back. You're listening to Career Talk on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Dr. Don Brand. Welcome back to Career Talk, your career insider. We are on Business Radio. We are powered by... Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. I'm the career director for the Wharton MBA for executives here in Philadelphia, and we are very excited to have you back. We're going to dive right into our pre-break quiz, so just in case you missed it before the break, here it is. It's Halloween season, which means haunted houses, scary movies, and spooky costumes. You may know that feeling frightened increases your heart rate, perspiration, and breathing, but what you may not know is that fear also increases the production of this in your body. Dion, Dion, Dion. Um, I'm gonna say like the, the, the tear duct juice. You know, God, you're 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 sort of close, actually. And I don't even see. Like, no, she's Michelle. He's sort of close. Um, I, I hate when he does that because it throws my answer off. What is your answer? Well, I was gonna say adrenaline. Yeah, no, it's 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 something more external. Oh, so that helps you. You, you. said sweat, right? Yeah, yeah, it's not that. Okay. No, no. I mean, something non-obvious, of course. So, I got nothing. Really? No. I mean, yes. Hair follicles. No, what? wouldn't that be great? Everybody be going to haunted houses all year round. I need to be scared. Scare me. Scare me. Okay. 
So just like stress and fear can make you sweat more, it also can up your earwax production. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, you need to know these things. Thank According you. to the American Speech Language Hearing Associations, but studies have shown that consuming omega-3 fatty acids found in food like fish and walnuts reduces the chance of earwax buildup, so the message is stay calm and eat salmon and you'll be fine. Anyway. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> in unison. Hey. <laughs> We've been working together too long. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Anyway, hey, come to Career Talk. We have lots of great information for you every week here. 844-Wharton, 844-942-7866. But right now, we are super excited to welcome international best-selling author Michael Watkins to the show. Michael is co-founder of Genesis Advisors, a global leadership development consultancy specializing in transition acceleration for leaders, teams, and organizations. He's also a professor of leadership and organization change at IMD Business School and author of the international bestseller, The First 90 Days, Proven Strategies for Getting Up to Speed Faster and Smarter, referred to as the Onboarding Bible by The Economist. It has sold over a million copies in English and has translations in 24 languages and is the classic text for all leaders who are starting a new job. Welcome, Michael. We're so excited to have you here. I am just delighted to be here, Donald. I have to tell you that conversation before we started has caused a lot of earwax buildup for me. Um, so. I'm sorry. I know you're, you're probably. I know we chatted, and you're probably like, "Am I in the right show?" I thought we were talking about careers and, and my book, and here we are talking about um, very weird things. Uh, we're it's wonderful. <laughs> please be feel, feel free to be weird on the show. <laughs> but let's talk about your book because I love your book. It obviously is helping people all over the globe, which m- must make you feel just awesome. And I think everybody should read it, whether you're in a new job or maybe you just got a promotion or maybe you moved into a new team or maybe you just have never read this book and you're thinking, why is there such a buzz around it? It has great information no matter what your situation. So let's dive right in. Most people are so happy to be done with the job search, Michael, that they're like, oh, you know, I'm not going to give any thought to the first 90 days, but it's, it's so critical. Tell us why. Well, so what the research shows and all the, the work and practice that we do shows is that first few weeks and months are just so critical, right? And so because people are forming opinions of you based on very little data, we know from good research on social psychology that once people have made up their minds about something, they tend to gather more information to support that belief and push aside, you know, stuff that doesn't. And so you need to pay exquisite attention to how you land in that new role and the early impressions that you create and the sense of momentum that happens around you. And if you don't do that, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. But I agree with you. It's hard. You know, I have just gone through this whole recruiting process. I'm exhausted. I want to take, you know, a couple of weeks and go someplace. Well, not such a great idea. Yeah. Or you can go someplace, but you should really be preparing for the job while you're sitting on the beach or on your cruise. Because here's here's the thing. I mean, like you said, first impressions, it's so critical in this confirmation bias, which is when somebody forms an impression, everything they see after that becomes um, supportive of that. So so what happens if you come in and I've seen people do this on their first day and, and every meeting they're in, they're saying, Michael, well, in our last company, we did this and you just want to like punch them. Right. But you absolutely do. I, I always tell people I work with, the, the words that should never come out of your mouth are, when I was at we. Mm-hmm. Because nobody cares. Right? Nobody, nobody cares. cares. And even if you've got answers to 
problems they struggle with, they don't really want to hear that you've got those answers. And so you always need to be focusing on socializing things and bringing people along and, and, and referring back to your old company. Is, there's no benefit at all, Don, to doing that. Nope. And so, so okay, so, so the point is to avoid making a bad first impression, but also to get an early win because you're, you're in a new company and yes, they did hire you, they've selected you, but now you kind of have to prove yourself. So, so how do you work on getting an, an early win, Michael? Sure. So, so transitions are about momentum, right? And ideally, it's positive momentum you're creating, right? Because, you know, as you begin to build up momentum, as you create good impressions, as you get people allied with you, your ability to do things increases, and it creates an upward spiral, right? On the other hand, what you don't want to do is have those early losses, which frankly are worse than not having early wins and start to get yourself going into a downward spiral. Early wins, the way I sort of think about it is there's early, early wins, right, which are landing well, arriving well, creating good initial impressions, connecting, learning, understanding, right? So the people are kind of going, oh, you know, Don's coming up to speed pretty quickly. And Don seems like a really good leader. And Don has taken the time to reach out, you know, to the key, the key constituents. You've clearly met me, Michael. So I have. have. You're wonderful. Every new role you take, Don. And and, and then there's kind of, I think of those later early wins, which is what are you going to focus your attention on to begin to have an impact and start to show results? So one of the things I love that you do in your book is you, you talk about a lot of different scenarios. So you talk about if you're in a, in a startup versus in a large corporation. And, and so it, you kind of create it for all these different situations. Um, but regardless of where you're starting, I think one of the things that we all know at the end of the day is politics and, and who has the information and all that is going to be critical to your success in a role. Because no matter how good you do in your job or how much you produce it's these these relationships and this politic you know environment this political environment that's going to have an impact so how can you start figuring out you know who who the decision makers are and who the people to avoid are and all that stuff no so so exactly right and actually again you know good studies have shown that the reason leaders fail going into new roles rarely has to do with their technical competency or their inherent leadership skills it's politics as you said, and it's culture. And often it's a mix of those two things together. And so what that means is as you come in, you should be really tuning yourself into are there cultural differences here that I need to be paying attention to? And how does the political system work? Because we know that informal organization is so critical, right? The starting point is just to identify who are the key stakeholders. And some of them are going to be obvious and some of them are not going to be necessarily so obvious. Um, one good thing you can always do, Don, is, is just ask your new boss, right? Who are the 10 people I most need to talk to mm-hmm. and why, right? And ideally even better, and it doesn't take much time for the manager to do that, get them to send out an email to those people and say, you know, Don has just joined the organization or she's just been promoted. I really think it would be beneficial for her to talk to you. Uh, she'll be in touch. Yeah. And that's just so simple. But so often people don't do things like that. Yeah. Or uh, you talk about like having coffee with your colleagues. I mean, just getting to know them on a personal level. I think that in and of itself is is so critical because you can learn a lot about somebody just you know eating lunch in the lunchroom and what they like, what they don't like, how they prefer to be communicated with. And that's that's so important. Yeah, no, I I teach a personality program a few times a year at the IMD Business School. And I had a participant in the last one. You know, I asked a question about how do you learn about culture and connection in the organization? And she said, she put up her hand and she said, if, if you don't do lunch in this organization, you're done for, right? 
because so much of what was crucial happens in those interpersonal connections over a meal. Now, that's not true of every organization, but in this one, she figured out early that she had to do lunch. And Mm -hmm. I think that's just an example of that. Yeah, I mean, even just being observant, what do people have on their desks? Do people bring their lunch or do they go out to lunch? Do do people tend to communicate via instant messenger or email? Do they get up and walk down the hall? I mean, I don't think anybody does that anymore, but, um, (laughs) you know, what? Virtually. Yeah, I know. What's going on here? Do people, do you Skype or video conference or do they prefer to fly out to places? I mean, a lot of this isn't going to be told to you. A lot of this stuff is not in the hands. Handbook. The handbook's got all the policies about vacation and how you do all that stuff. But but this stuff, it's not in the handbook. So what are some of those things you can do to to figure those out besides just observing and talking to people? Because I think we are so not observant anymore, Michael. We're, we have our face on our phones and, you know, and that's it. <laughs> no, it's exactly right, Don. And so what you're getting us into inappropriately because it's such a key issue is culture, Right. And, and it helps a lot to understand what an organizational culture is and how to get sort of an understanding of it faster than you might otherwise do so. And I, I look at sort of three levels of culture, and the top level is exactly what you're talking about. It's symbols, it's dress, it's the way, you know, space is used, but it's also language, right? Every organization has its own set of acronyms. And if you don't speak those acronyms, acronyms you have no idea what's going on, Right. And then there's a level of sort of um, mental models and beliefs and mindset pieces. And then deep down, there's sort of values and, and other, other parts of this. And so you can get at that language and those symbols right away. That's what you were talking about. You pretty soon need to figure out key behavioral norms, like how do people, how do people act in, 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 in meetings. So couldn't agree with you more, right? And, and there's absolutely ways to speed up the process of understanding uh, a new culture. Yeah, I think it, you need to be intentional about it. I mean, whether you take Absolutely. notes or, you know, whatever you're doing, you ask questions while you're getting coffee or getting water, you know, hey, do people usually bring their lunch? I mean, these are things exactly. that are, are just really easy to do and can make such a difference in you getting adjusted, which is hard because you're, you're in a new environment. You don't know the people. You don't know what's going on. So ask those questions. I think you're going to find that, that that's going to be super helpful. Hey, 844-942-7866. We're super excited to have Michael Watkins here who is – the author of the book, The First 90 Days, which has been referred to by The Economist as the Onboarding Bible. It's an international bestseller. And if you haven't yet read it and you are working in any capacity, you want to go out and get this book right now because it has so many helpful, concrete tips to um, starting a job or getting after you get a promotion or even if you're in the middle of of your job and things aren't working out right, a lot of these tips can probably help. 844-942-7866. So according to a study by Robert Half, quarter of employees are willing to quit a new job in the first 90 days if they don't find it satisfactory. And that is why this book is so important. So so what if you hate your job, Michael? What if you're like, you know, two months in and you're like, I made a huge mistake? Yeah, so so it happens for sure, and it happens more often than you might imagine. And it's it's why just sort of on the side here that onboarding programs for organizations are so crucial because you want to connect people fast. It's been shown to help with retention and engagement, and so there's a real rationale for doing that work, Don. But let's take your case, right? You're in a new job. You really hate it. You want to ask yourself, what is it that happened here firstly, right? Was it that I just didn't understand the nature of this, you know, role, is that I didn't understand the culture, were people kind of misleading me in some senses, right? I mean, I have my little jokes about this, and I say that, you know, um, recruiting is like romance and employment is like marriage, you know? (laughs) 
I'm serious. Right? So during the recruiting process, we are falling in love, right? I've got my best suit on. You look mighty fine. You know, uh, I'll always do the dishes. I really like your mother. Seriously. Right? I'm sorry. And then there's the cold, harsh light of competition, right? And, and so... You know, you, so one thing you need to do, first of all, is understand what happened here, right? Why, why was there this, this, you know, gap in understanding uh, that happened, right? And was that your fault? And no, it's always his gotta... fault, Michael. It's always his fault. <laughs> exactly. Period. Exactly. I know, believe me, I learned this lesson yeah. a long time ago. Dion knows. Dion, it's always yeah. your fault. You know that, right? Of course it is. Yeah, see? It's just survival <laughs> to admit that, Dion, yeah, honestly, right? So the sooner you realize that, the better. But no, look, look I, think, I think you've got to... And, and it's, I always advise leaders to have strong advice networks, people they can turn to to talk, because you've got a basic decision here, right? Do you cut your losses and move on? Now, that's conditioned on what other opportunities you have. Do you try to tough it out and see if it's going to get a little bit better? Um, you know, that's the basic approach that I use to these things, right? I think there's, there can be, especially at senior levels, really negative consequences to leaving a job fast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you know, given the strength of the labor markets and unemployment these days, you know, it's completely possible to leave a job after, you know, two months and go and get another great job. Yeah. So I'm not giving you a direct answer, Don. It's complicated. But well, don't uh, worry, because you made me laugh so hard I forgot what I asked you. So I, I, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, in today's day and age, you, um, if you hate your job, you, you, try, you try and make it work. And if you can't, yeah, if you get another job, you know, time goes by. You don't have to put that on the resume. It's not the end of the world. We've all done it. If you're working any length of time, you're going to experience stuff like this. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to get laid off. You're going to, you know, have a bad boss. All of these things happen. It's just part of the game. 844-942-7866. We are here talking to Michael Watkins, who's the author of The First 90 Days and Side Hobby Comedian, which we did not know, but we love here on Career Talk. 844-942-7866. So let's talk about some maybe a little bit more challenging situations. We're hearing a lot more, yeah. Michael, about um, newly created roles as the market yeah. shifts and hybrid jobs and stuff. So I imagine as somebody starting a newly created role, it can be very exciting because you're like, wow, I can kind of morph this. But it's also a little bit hard because the organization hasn't really laid out the performance measures. You may have dotted lines to multiple people and they're not sure what they're doing. So what is your advice for somebody starting a newly created job? So joys and sorrows, right, which is what you're, you're taking us to exactly, Don, which is the joy is, look, it's a, it's a green field. I can take it and make something from it. It's been created hopefully for a good reason, right, that there's something exciting that needs to be done that isn't being done today. That's the upside. The downside is there may not be enough definition for the role. In addition to the things you mentioned, it, it, there may be people who think that your new role is what part of their role is. Right. And so there can be an almost inevitable kind of friction that happens early on. The best advice I can give about this is make sure that that, you know, role has been really carefully thought through, carefully socialized. People understand to a reasonable degree why you're why you're there, that there's support for what you're doing, that people aren't surprised to find out that Don shows up, you know, as VP of integration, making this up right tomorrow. And they're like, sounds good to me. What 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 integration are we talking about here? Right. So. I think it's things like that. On the other hand, it's often a great opportunity, especially if you've got an entrepreneurial uh, nature. 
Yeah, I think you do have to work a little bit harder in a newly created role because I think that there's going to be some reliance on you as a, as a new employee to bring some of those ideas and shape that role. And, and your manager or managers may be so excited that they're there. They may just kind of be like, all right, great, go fix this. And you're like, fix what? And like you said, other people may think they're fixing it. I think there can be a lot of confusion. So making it a point to ensure that what you see on paper is actually your job and what you're getting measured on early in the process so that you don't kind of screw people up and, um, you know, get people on your bad side is really important. What about... Um, well, if, just, just before we leave that, though, yeah. I, I agree with that completely, but also as you get into the role, go back to your manager, go back to key stakeholders and re-contract and, and realign and really make sure that everyone's clear on why you're there because it may not be able to be fully defined right from the beginning. Yeah, I love that because at some point you're going to get a performance review and you really want to know what you're being measured on and you don't want the surprise Absolutely. of, hey, yeah, we weren't even paying attention to that. Actually, you should have been doing this. Hey, 844-942-7866, you're listening to Career Talk Series XM 132. We're here with Michael Watkins, the international best-selling author of The First 90 Days, a book that should be on everyone's bookshelf. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. If you haven't seen my TEDx, really easy. Go to Google, type Don Graham TEDx, and there it goes. Um, hey, so what about if you get promoted over your peers, Michael? This can be both exciting and a little anxiety-provoking because now the whole dynamic has shifted. No, for, for sure, right? And there's a few things you really need to pay attention to in that situation, right? In an ideal world, it was already evident that you were the one to become the next head of X, right? And so it's not a big surprise to anyone, but often it is a surprise and not necessarily a pleasant surprise, right? In an ideal world, you, you know, your, your transition is announced and, and the baton is passed appropriately to you, but often that doesn't happen effectively either, right? So it really depends on part of the situation you're facing for sure. But regardless, you often have a few key challenges, right? And one is dealing with the disappointed, right? The people on the team who might have thought that they wanted this role, they're now wondering what their career prospects are going forward. Have they been dead-ended? How do you re-enlist the good people on the team, right? Because the people you want to keep, that's one. The other is, are there people that just are not going to be able to get over it and work with you? And the sooner that you uh, are successful in identifying that and helping them you know, move to better places, the better off for sure you are, right? And finally, relationships need to change, right? You may have had a form of friendship with some of those peers, and now you're their supervisor, and you really can't typically continue to have that kind of relationship. That's a loss for you, and potentially that's a loss for them. And finally, how do, how do, you, how do you sort of establish your authority in that new role, right? The danger is you come in, you know, uh, Napoleon, right, I, I, I am in command, you know, now all scores will be settled. <laughs> that's, um, that's one end of the process. The, the other possibility is you continue to function almost like super peer, and that's not good, good either. And so how do you get the sort of the right balance as you begin to establish yourself uh, in that new role? Yeah, because you're, you're managing now up and you're managing down and you have to kind of play to both. And if you're, you're too buddy-buddy, you're, the upper leadership may see that as a problem. And if you're not, if you shut off all things and your employees may not like you and decide they're not going to be very motivated to get things done. And I also think you need to rethink things like social media. I mean, we're now in this complicated, Absolutely. connected world where it's not just about being, you know, how you act at work, but are you friends with these people offline and are you sharing things that – 
you know, may, maybe shouldn't be shared now. I mean, it, there's a lot to think about when you make this type of transition, for sure. Oh, it, it couldn't agree with you more. So um, one of the things I think is critical that a lot of people don't do is understanding how to work with their manager. And, and kind of as we're, yep. we're wrapping up, Michael, um, I think it's really critical that people understand how their manager wants to communicate. And also the manager needs to know how you want to be rewarded. Some people don't want yep. a big, you know, hoopla. Some people want to, you know, get so really quickly as we wrap up, what, what are some ways you can really sit down with your manager to gain an understanding? Right. So, so I think that, first of all, you're absolutely right, right, that you need to get alignment. And alignment is not just what are my goals, what are my measures, you know, what's my comp, right? It's also about are we in agreement about what I'm up against, right? What kind of situation I, am I into, right? Is this a turnaround? Is it a startup? Is it a realignment? Is it some mix of those things? And then you hit on a really crucial one, which is communication style. Right. We've all worked for managers or leaders who have different communication styles than we do. It can create real challenges. So having that conversation early about how do you really want me to communicate with you? Right. Is it is it texting? Is it, you know, uh, Snapchat? I'm joking. Right. um, (laughs) I'm out. (laughs) Is is it you you want Instagram pictures of me? Smoke signals, interpretive dance. what, (laughs) What do you need here? Right. So. So having that, that sort of communication style conversation and how can we best work together and adapting yourself to the realities of who your manager is and how they how they lead, right? Yeah, be I, the best advice I, could give. I think that will save a lot of problems down the line because a lot of problems just are at the root communication problems and that's just it. Um, Michael, this time has flown by. You are so fun and I'm going to say it again. Your book, The First 90 Days, is something everybody should have on their bookshelf because there's so much great information on it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people reach you if they want more information? Well, it's been a pleasure and, and I'm going to head off and get my earwax <laughs> Um, but the best place to reach me is LinkedIn. Michael Watkins' um, website is uh, Genesis Advisors, www.genesisadvisors, with an ERS.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michael. And, of course, Michelle and Dion and all of our listeners. We love having you here on Career Talk Sirius XM, Channel 132. We'll see you next time. Site from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.